Welcome back, my friends. It's another episode of the Shema Podcast, and I am excited and looking forward to introducing you to the guest I have coming on the show. Before we delve into this topic, let me lay some bedrock about what this topic is about. And I'm going to do so by sharing with you a story from my youth. Back after my first year of college had completed, according to my metrics, it was a very successful year of college. Those metrics being spending a great deal of time partying, having fun, drunken binges with the boys. But my father had a different set of metrics that he was going by. He wanted me to learn. More importantly, learn how to learn. And he wanted me to appreciate the opportunity he was giving me by getting an education so I could use my mind to make a living rather than my back. So my father was a project manager and engineer for Root. He told me that summer he was bringing me down to New Orleans where he was working on a project. Nolens, summertime, 104 degree weather, humidity so thick that Houston looked like a dry environment in comparison. He told me something on the way to work that very first day. And he said that since he is the boss, he was the head guy there, the project manager, that he wanted to make sure my life was not challenging being the boss's son. So in order to help me out, he said, he assigned me to a foreman and he told the foreman to put me on the most challenging task, the ones no one else wanted to do. And furthermore, he said he told the foreman not to give me breaks. Because he didn't want anyone to think I was getting unfair, preferential treatment. He wanted me to earn their respect by the fact that I was on the the most backbreaking, laborious task. And I had work ethic. And I could do it. He said that would alleviate his concerns that I would be spending the summer getting in fights in the workyard. And I think back to that now and I realize that that is very similar to the relationship we have with the Almighty I mean, the other nations may not intellectually, consciously know, but deep down they know that they have an intermediary angel between them and the Almighty, and we report directly to him. And that is why the Almighty is harder on us. He knows that when we toil in Torah and our service to him, the other nations respect us. And when we try to just get along and be a part of them, Then they, for some reason, which they can't really comprehend the reason why, but they resent us. Anti-Semitism builds up. And so he put us in a situation where we're going to work hard either way, either in his service or battling with the other nations. That's one aspect of that memory that definitely is very analogous to our Yiddishkeit. But the second thing that really ties into the topic that we're going to be discussing today and that is the, the projects he had me working on were, for one, the very first one was the foreman brought me out to what used to be a concrete slab. It had been broken up somewhat by jackhammer, but it was pretty much just concrete and rebar. He gave me a sledgehammer, a pickaxe, and a wheelbarrow. And he said the task at hand was to bust it all up, put the, the concrete blocks and wheelbarrow, haul it across the yard, dump it somewhere so it could be picked up. After that task was complete, He brought me to a probably a nine or 10 foot hole. And he said, my task was to climb into the hole, dig the mud up, throw it outside the hole, which was quite challenging on its own, 
But what was most challenging about that project is just moving my foot out of the mud to position myself in a different location took a tremendous amount of strength on its own, just, just to move around. And when that project was done, I went back to the other area I had started working on, busting up all the concrete. They had built a wood frame for a new foundation. And my job was to go to the other side of the yard where there was rebar, these, I guess, a one-inch, three-quarter-inch diameter steel rod that was probably around 10 feet long. And I had to grab a bundle of these after they'd been sitting in the hot sun, hoist them onto my shoulder, walk across the yard, and bring them to the guys so they could tie rebar. And they would allow me to tie the rebar with them so I could have a break. And But once the inventory of rebar got low, I had to walk back across the field put another bundle on my shoulder and bring it back to them. And that was my my summer of grueling, very challenging, physically exhausting labor. On a side note, when I went back to school that year, I did study intensely, very intensely. So the lesson was learned. I knew that is not the way I wanted to make a living. However, back to the point at hand is that one of the things my father told me At the end of the day, when I would get in the car so tired, is he would tell me that what I was doing in building the foundation, that that was the most important job there. Because he said, all my plans for this plant, all the infrastructure that we will build on top of the foundation is meaningless unless that foundation is built strong. So he would tell me, what you are doing is vital without you doing your job, nothing else matters. So what does that have to do with Torah? Everything. As I mentioned to you in the past, when I first started learning, I did not start actually learning Torah. I was just trying to learn whether or not it was true. And I was just reading articles and articles and logical proofs for Torah. And I was reading about how it's a blueprint for creation. And when I learned it was true, it was just the most amazing thing in the world to me. I mentioned this to you before, but it was just like I discovered, and I did discover, the most amazing human discovery of all time. But I didn't know there was any rabbis to talk with. Every rabbi I had met, or quote-unquote rabbi, said the Torah was written by man. And when I was excited and telling everyone, hey, it's true, this is directly from the infinite internal creator, nobody else cared. So I didn't think there was any other Jews in the state of Texas that knew this truth. So it was just me talking to Hashem, and I got a Chumash in English and started reading it, But because it was in English, I was just seeing the outer clothing of the Torah. And I was just reading those biblical stories I remember coloring pictures about when I was a kid. I wasn't seeing any blueprint. I wasn't seeing the schematics. I put that to the side and prayed to Hashem. And with his help and with a Google search or his intervention with that Google search, I came across a book, The Way of God by Rabbi Luzoto, the Ramakal. And that was the first Torah book I ever read. And that is exactly what I needed to be reading. It is the foundation. He was able to look and extract from all levels, the deepest levels of Torah, and bring out exactly why we're here, why God created the world. Everything a Jew needs to know. The foundation to build the rest of their Torah learning on. Now, when I finished it the first time, I immediately started reading it a second time. Because I wanted to make sure I did not miss any concepts or that I had forgotten any concepts because I knew 
what I was reading was so essential for any future learning. And I've read it several times since, but it's been a while. I was very excited, my friends, to come across the most amazing podcast. The name of the podcast is What is Judaism? The Complete Guide. And the host of this podcast are our beloved Rabbi Busco, the average rabbi, and his student, Joe Armour. And they delve into this book in the student and teacher format, which is such a great way to teach a text, especially when the student is more articulate and intelligent than you. Not speaking about the rest of you listening, but just me personally. Listening to Joe ask the questions and learn and seeing the impact this book is having on him, the way it had an impact on me, brings me back to those early days. That level of enthusiasm and awe of Torah. My friends, I have asked Rabbi Busco and Joe Armour to come on and talk about their new venture, this podcast, and about the book, The Way of God. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Welcome, Rabbi Busco and Joe. I appreciate you guys coming on to the show. Oh, thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here again. Thank you for having us. So I want to begin, Joe, because your journey just began at Pesach. You just had the red pill. You're just waking up for the matrix. I remember that experience. Share with the audience what that experience has been like, starting with what got you to that first Pesach Seder at Rabbi Busco's and to this point. All right. Well, so what got me to that first Seder was I was dating a Jewish woman. I'd been on a couple of dates with a young Jewish woman, and she took me to the Seder. But that's less important than actually what occurred there. When I got to this Seder, I had always been told my whole life, never go to an Orthodox Seder. You, you want to avoid those. They'll be four hours long and you'll be there, you know, all night. And I'd been to Seders as a, as a young boy, you know, at the grandparents' house, what have you. And the ones that were 30, 45 minutes long felt like an eternity. And so I was thinking, oh man, what have I gotten myself into? And it was just an experience unlike anything I've ever had before. I think, I think the Seder actually lasted for six hours and I enjoyed every minute of it. It was, <laughs> it was absolutely incredible. And I really felt a connection that I couldn't ignore. Uh, really, it's something profound happened there. And I, I wanted to continue going with it. So I talked to Rabbi Buzko after the Seder and I said, Hey, you know, I, this was really impactful for me. I'd really like to continue learning some of this stuff. I think it was something like that. Uh, but I, I made sure to let him know that. that I think I important. asked you out for coffee, but you know, we're not going to split hairs. <laughs> so, and I didn't, I didn't state this sort of self-evident with the way I positioned things, but you were brought up a lot like me in a very secular world, not religious. Correct. Right. 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 So, so Judaism has been very interesting for me where I've always felt this, this pull of it. I've never been able to, you know, in my younger years, uh, I think I measured success similarly to how you said in your intro, you were measuring it. It was how much fun I'm having, how how many parties I'm going to. So I, I always wanted to kind of 
let go of it and blend in with the crowd, but I always felt that pull of Judaism and I never understood it. And so this was what brought me back to it. And it was just clear immediately that this was the path I should be on. Talk about that Seder. What about it created that type of connection that you knew you wanted to learn more? That's interesting. Exactly what it was is hard to say. The connection with Hashem was so genuine, so apparent with the people sitting around the table. It wasn't that we're sitting here because we, we have to. This is something that we're, we're obligated to do so that we don't lose the tradition, you know, for tradition's sake. This was something where people were using this as an experience to actually become closer to God. And that was instantly evident. So there was just, there was no denying it. So that's wonderful. So what's taken place since then? I think we've been meeting myself and the rabbi uh, just about once a week ever since then. And I've been learning and we, we've kind of covered a little bit here and a little bit there. I've learned a little bit about Talmud, Mishnah, but Rabbi Buzko a few weeks ago, maybe month, month and a half said, Hey, I've got a great idea. I think we should go through Derech Hashem, the way of God. And what I'd like to do is, you know, benefit more people than just you. We could do this as a podcast if you're open to the idea. I said, that sounds like a fantastic idea. So we've been, we've been going through that for the last month or so. And it's been, it's been unbelievable, really. It's, it's a great format because I know like many books I've read, I think Rabbi Hirsch did this as well, where he wasn't actually talking to a student, but he was, he was asking the questions as a student. So the book's written like a back and forth. And it's a, it, for some reason, it's just a much more engaging way of learning because you are. Well, it is engaging, right? It prompts you to, right. to respond. This is the classic model for Jewish teaching anyway. If you look in the Talmud, it's written as a dialogue. So this is a, we didn't, we didn't come up with this idea ourselves. <laughs> this is ancient. Well, Rabbi Busco, so talk about what was your inspiration behind the podcast, which is called What is Judaism? Right. So we, we wanted to base the entire podcast, the, the entire series on this book. And one of the questions that, that I had been asked earlier is why not just name it the book? I mean, if, if the entire podcast is just the book, just it's called The Way of God in English, just call it that. The answer really is, because that's not as engaging of a title, maybe. If someone's looking online, I like simple titles. I don't like shtick and fancy things and clever whatever. People are looking for a certain content. What is, what is Judaism? They want to know what is Judaism. Type that into Google. And I want them to find that. And that's really what this book is. You can say the way of God. That's true. But for someone that's, that wants an overall view, and this is something that people really need, whether it's someone who is interested in converting to Judaism, which isn't necessarily our target audience. We're, we're talking to the uneducated Jew. But if you just want to know, what, what does Judaism comprise? Because a lot of people just don't know basic, fundamental tenets of Jewish belief. Do we believe in heaven? Do we believe in hell? What's what the afterlife do? What, what are commandments? What's a mitzvah? All of these things, maybe we, we think we know. We probably don't care enough to try to investigate it very much if we're, if we're an unaffiliated Jew. But there's a, a tremendous amount of ignorance about this topic. And so I wanted to create a series, as is in the title, a comprehensive guide to what is included in Judaism. And that's what this book does. It goes through from start to finish, starting with the most fundamental concept, which is God, and then how that unfolds from there. Just one thing leads to the next. And the Ramchal 
uh, Rabbi Lutzato, the author of this book, was a master of organization. And this was his greatest strength, that he drew from all of these sources, Kabbalistic sources, which are practically inaccessible to most Jews, even educated Jews. And he compiled these ideas together and organized them in a way that's now tangible and accessible to every single Jew. And, um, but, and, and even the way it's written now is still a little difficult to, to grasp. It, it is very philosophical and intellectual. And so part of what we're trying to do here with this podcast is take what he did one step further, make it even more accessible. First of all, obviously translating it into English, but having a discussion about it in a way that, that it can really be brought down to our generation. And I, I hope that we're accomplishing that to some degree. Joe is amazing. Joe is what makes the podcast because you You're can... You're too kind. No, it's true because you can, anyone can read this book. You can get an English translation of the book. But what's really valuable for a listener is to have someone in your place, Joe, that, and like you said, Dan, he's extraordinarily intelligent and articulate. And so he's able to fulfill this role in, in an excellent manner that can, that the, the listener can put themselves in his place and he addresses all of the questions that the listener might have. And it just gives that extra layer of accessibility that would otherwise be lacking if you would just read a book. And the dialogue format makes it alive. It makes it uh, more engaging. And it's, it's something, it's not something that you can listen to as you're doing the dishes or playing Candy Crush or something like that. It, it does require a lot of focus because this book is dense. It's got a, a lot of really heavy material. And I hope that we are distilling it enough that it can be accessible, but it requires focus. You got to really listen to it with focus and study. So that's the dream. Yeah, look, I agree. Not to embarrass you, Joe, but you, the fact that you are asking those questions, the questions that maybe many of us wouldn't have thought of and structure the question the way you, you do does a considerably in the learning versus if you just did The Way of God audio book and you just read it. It wouldn't be the same at all. I'm curious, Rabbi. I, the One of the reasons I love the Ramchal is because the way he writes text is... One concept, they continues to build on another very linear type thought process, which is sort of, for me, is, is the way I, I learn the best. It seems like there's no extra words in his text ever. Do you find the English translation, do you find anything lacking from the English translation? Because a lot of times translating Hebrew to English, there seems to be what I hear, what I understand, what I understand from those who read and comprehend Hebrew that a lot of times the meaning gets lost with the translation. Absolutely. But also there's, there's no such thing as the English translation. There are several, uh, the one that's the most popular, probably if you, if you have it on your shelf, you went out to the latest Judaica store and bought it. What you probably have is Rabbi Arya Kaplan's translation. I think you have it over there. He's incredible. He really is amazing. And he did a great job of translating the text but he says himself in the foreword that it's not a literal translation because the literal translation of every single word would still be pretty convoluted because he did write in, in a very philosophical way. So what Rabbi Kaplan does in his English translation is he tries to encapsulate the, the gist of the idea and transmit at least the concepts and the, and the philosophies that the author, the Ramchal, is trying to present so every word might not line up. 
So he's doing his his best job, right? That, that's that's a translator's challenge. Do I stick to the integrity of the literal translation, or do I try to get across the author's meaning and and take the liberty to choose other words? So that that's always a challenge. He does a fantastic job. In the podcast, we're not using that translation. We're not using any translation, actually. I, I guess I'm the translation, and it's hard. It's not easy. I hope I'm doing an, an okay job. Um, I think you're doing a fantastic job. That's what I was going to ask, because you're translating it yourself, which also brings another layer in understanding for me who, who just read that one translation. But the point that you're bringing up, that translating from Hebrew, especially ancient Hebrew, into any other language. Well, this is true of any translation. Things get lost in translation. And every translation, by definition, is also an interpretation. And there's always going to be something lost, and especially with a language that's so profound, Lushan HaKodesh, what we call the holy tongue, the holy language, that there's so much connotation that's built into every single root, linguistically, semantically, in, in the Hebrew language. It's going to be impossible to really get across, unless you stop every single sentence and say, you, you know, the connotation of this word really implies this. And sometimes we do that. But to break it down on that level, it would, you know, it would take so much time that it would be unfeasible. Why don't you give the audience a little background on Rabbi Lizotto? People who may not be familiar with the book and who, who the, the, the rabbi is who wrote the book. Sure. So Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lizotto was born in Italy. I forgot the exact city. But he was born in Italy uh, in the very early 18th century. And scholars tried to estimate the time at which specifically this book was written because there was no date. He didn't, he didn't uh, date it. But somewhere around 300 years ago, maybe a little bit earlier, 290, something like that. He was, he was a very unique individual. And in fact, he was very controversial in his time. By the age of 14, he had already mastered the entire revealed Torah, which means all of the Talmud and anything that's accessible to most educated Jews, and also Kabbalistic texts. And he had started to write about it and proliferate these things as well, which is why he was so controversial. Up until recent times, the whole field of Kabbalistic thought was is taboo. And especially in those times with Shabbatite Svi, your listeners are probably some may be familiar or not and familiar, Shabbatai Tzvi was a false messiah that had, he had a huge following within the Jewish people. And part of his thing was he was a Kabbalistic master, or at least he claimed to be. And he did have a lot of knowledge in these areas. Eventually he was captured by Muslims and forced to convert at the point of a sword. And he did, he converted to Islam and it was a tremendous tragedy for the Jewish people. So that he, even before then, mainstream rabbis were already very hesitant to accept him. And, and they had already officially discounted him as being the Messiah, actually for a very uh, interesting reason. I guess I'll tell you if I say that, yeah, I should yeah, tell you. Please. One of the conditions of being Mashiach is that you keep basic Jewish law, right? There is a law about basically everything, how to live. There's a law about how to sleep. And it is technically forbidden to sleep on your back. And ideally, a Jew should be sleeping on their side. In fact, uh, it's brought down maybe sleep, start on your left side, and then in the middle of the night, turn to your right side. But that's the way to sleep. Some rabbis found him once he was napping on his back. And they said, okay, that's it. He's not that's a not, That was it. That was, the, that was the sign. So he was already discounted, and they were trying to discredit him 
uh, even before he had converted. Uh, but And then once that happened, he did take many Jews with him, but the majority of Jews realized that it wasn't him. And, and you got to understand, you know, Jews have it so good today. We're, we live in luxury. And we complain about anti-Semitism here and there, and we we see events, isolated events of violence around. And uh, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. It does, of course. But compared to the rest of Jewish history, where there was just this really overt oppression of Jews and just a hatred of the Jewish people, where we're subjugated and poor and pushed around and, and attacked, raped, murdered. I mean, a horrible, horrible, bloody history that we've experienced for, for most of our exile these last 2,000 years. The promise of having Mashiach, of having the Messiah, was, I mean, it was a, a beacon of light and hope for sure. every single Jew. And when, when someone steps up and makes that promise, and it lights everyone's hearts on fire, and then converts to Islam, right. the, the devastation was immense. So it further reinforced the rabbi's hesitancy with embracing Kabbalah, Kabbalistic teachings. And so the Ramchal, he comes on the stage and he's doing this. He's, he's teaching these things and he's trying to make it accessible. And so he was, he was also seen as controversial. It wasn't until much later that he was accepted as mainstream. And he even, he died very young. He was 39 years old when he passed away. Why was there a common denominator that if someone learns the more Kabbalah, that somehow is equates with someone that what well, they think he, that Ramchal was going to be become a false messiah as well because he's just studying that area of Torah. No, no, no. I, I don't think the concern would he he would be another false messiah. It wasn't about the, the messianic issue was was a side thing. The danger of teaching Kabbalah in general was what what mainstream rabbis were afraid of. Someone learning Kabbalah wasn't taboo so long as it was a very select individual that had been chosen by a master. I mean, this is how Kabbalah has been transmitted throughout our generations. It was very selective and very private and secretive. And so for him to have studied it wouldn't have been an issue. But when someone starts to write material and bring it down and make it accessible to the masses, that's where it gets dangerous because these things can be very easily misconstrued and have devastating consequences. And one of the consequences was like this, this false messiah issue. So that's just one potential danger that could have come with it. But they they were just against the proliferation of Kabbalah in general. So let me ask you this. Where was Ramchal on the the timeline versus Baal Shev Tov? Because that was also criticism that was against him as well for taking more of these, the deeper level of Torah and sharing it with the masses. There was that same criticism with him, correct? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I should I should preface this by saying that I'm I'm by no means an authority on any of these things, but I'll, I can tell you what what I know, what I've learned. As we mentioned, in general, the the study and the teaching of Kabbalah was very secretive until the time of the Ari Hakadosh. The Ari was was a tremendous individual. He was born in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem, in fact, and moved moved away with his parents when he was very young and spent much of his uh, childhood and young adulthood in Egypt. And then his adulthood, he moved back to Israel. In fact, he tried to move back to Jerusalem, but he claimed that the the noise of the destruction of the temple was maddening. And bear in mind, the destruction of the temple had occurred about 1,600 years previous. So he had to move away from Jerusalem, and he moved up north into a city called Sfat. 
In Svat, he acquired a disciple named Rav Chaim Vital. And in two years, the Ari had taught Rav Chaim Vital, apparently, all he needed to know. And the Ari passed away, also at a very young age. From that point, Rav Chaim Vital spent his entire life extrapolating and writing down the teachings that he had learned from his master in those two years, what we now call the Kisve Ari, which is, literally means the writings of the Ari, but it's not technically accurate because it was written by his student, Rav Chaim Vital. This became the basis for the intellectual pursuit of Kabbalistic texts. And I say the intellectual pursuit because there are other areas of Kabbalah, uh, is meditative Kabbalah, practical Kabbalah, which that doesn't really touch on. This is sort of the, the academic intellectual pursuit of understanding how worlds are created and the structure of the universe and, and all the deeper esoteric things that you could conjecture about. So that was the body of text. Once that became revealed in the world, a few individuals came on the world stage afterwards and brought it down even further and in different ways. So the Baal Shem Tov, as you mentioned, was one of them. The Baal Shem Tov expounded on the teachings of the Ari and also brought Kabbalah down to a much more accessible level for the layman. And that was really his, his mission in the world. Was You understand the Jewish people at that time in Europe, in the early 1700s, they had basically no connection to anything deeper as a Jew. Because philosophy was taboo because of the Enlightenment movement. People were leaving in droves the Jewish faith because they were getting sucked in by John Locke and all this, uh, this great Enlightenment philosophy. And to even engage in philosophical debate became forbidden practically because there was such a danger of a Jew leaving his faith because he wasn't educated enough about Judaism and to counter these philosophical arguments, philosophy became taboo. Kabbalah was taboo because of Shabbat Tzvi. So at that point, what are you left with? Either you're a tremendous scholar, which was very rare for Jews who couldn't afford to send a child to yeshiva. And that's it. That, that was the option. So therefore, most Jews, that they had no option of connecting other than this is tradition, right? That's, that was their Pesach Seder. Was, we're, we're Jews. This is what we do. Why? I don't know. You know this is what my parents did. So... There was no understanding of what they were doing. There's no deeper connection. And so comes the Baal Shem Tov, and he revolutionized Judaism in Europe in his time. And he taught the lowliest Jew that you have a personal direct connection with God. And he was able to bring down these Kabbalistic teachings in a way that the, the simplest Jew who was uneducated could connect to. So because he was doing that, that was controversial, right? He, again, he was proliferating Kabbalah, and making it accessible not only to scholars, but to, to the layman. And so that was even even more preposterous from the mainstream perspective. So he was doing that. The Ramchal was much, he took much more of a uh, intellectual academic approach, and they practically serviced different regions, I guess, of Europe, whereas okay. the Baal Shem Tov so was the, more the, in Galicia. Was at the same time. It was around the same time. It was around the same time period. And shortly after the Ramchal came the Vilna Gon, who I guess you could say was even more academic and intellectual in his pursuit. And maybe some people who are familiar with the Vilna Gon might not know that he was a master Kabbalist as well, that he achieved that in his later days. And he himself, although he never met the Ramchal, 
the Vilna Gaon claimed that had he been alive in his time, he would have walked to Italy on foot and bowed to him and called him master. So the Vilna Gaon was another Kabbalist. And finally, we have the Rishash. The Rishash lived in the Middle East, and he was the, I guess, the source of Kabbalistic thought for the Sephardi Jewish community. See, I wasn't even aware of this. I didn't even really consider this book to be Kabbalah. I thought it was just Torah. And it seems like you're describing not all the Jewish people, but pockets of Jews that became totally disconnected from the reason we follow the mitzvot. I'm, I'm actually a little surprised that, that that seemed to get lost along the way. Well, w- without scholars, how would it continue? Right? These are, unfortunately, ask the average observant Jew some of the deepest questions about Jewish philosophy. Unfortunately, many of them won't be able to answer because the things that are just the most obvious are just assumed. It's difficult to start to challenge your faith. It might be even dangerous to start to challenge your faith, and people might take that approach, uh, even ideally. Let's not get involved. Don't ask hard questions, although that's not officially the Jewish approach, right? We don't we don't do that. We encourage questions, but if someone doesn't have the answers and doesn't have the accessibility to the answers, then it is dangerous. And so, yes, but the tradition was lost, and they're just left with, you know, what we do. Well, to that point, this is why I've been so appreciative to be a part of this, because it does what we've been doing, at least with the podcast, has been learning linearly, basing one thing on another. And what that's done is it's shown me that there is actually a full and coherent Jewish philosophy uh, that can easily go head to head with all the other ones that I've encountered prior to seeing this. Isn't that amazing? I I was in university. I was in the University of Pittsburgh before I became observant, and I was studying philosophy. And ostensibly, the University of Pittsburgh has a great philosophy department. And I met a rabbi on campus, and I started asking him some basic questions. I wasn't expecting to hear anything profound. Uh, I was just curious because I wanted to start learning ethics. So I was curious, what does Judaism say about XYZ? I didn't know. And then I was hearing good answers. And what baffled me the most was what you just said. Why is no one teaching this? Why is Jewish philosophy not presented in universities? And the reason is? Probably because Jews aren't interested in putting it there, right? <laughs> they would need to actually have someone that, that knows it to teach it. But beyond that, I don't really have a great answer. Maybe because it's too good and it encourages belief in God, which is everything that they try to smash right, right as soon as you walk in, right? The philosophy 101 was all of the arguments about why proofs of God are stupid. That was my class. Right. I mean, I sort of knew the answer because to teach Jewish philosophy means to teach Torah and to teach that this is a, a truth that came from a creator and we're held accountable and there's moral absolutes. And that is 100% exactly what the college setting in the rest of the world really wants to hear. Right. I, I guess the, an idealist would hope that they would have the intellectual honesty to at least present it, but apparently not. Uh, but, but again, you know, it could be for the first reason. They just don't, they don't know about it. They don't have access to it, which most Jews don't. And, uh, and so therefore, how could you expect non-Jews to have it and then present it in a university setting? Well, yeah, you learn about your, your presuppositions. And the only presupposition that's acceptable on the college campus is you have to start from the assumption that there is no God. And anything you build from there has the potential to be valid. Anything you build from the other assumption that there is a God is inherently invalid. 
from their perspective. That's a sweeping state. Yeah, it probably is true on most campuses. I don't want to offend any uh, philosophy professors out there that are believers and do present this, and I'm sure that uh, they do exist. But I may be buying a pretty broad brush. Right, but th- I think you're doing it because that was your experience and that was my experience. Right. I think it's a lot of people's experience. That's the general culture on, on many college campuses today. But anyway, you, you said something earlier that you said you didn't know that the way of God, Derech Hashem, is Kabbalah. You thought it was just Torah. And that, right. was, an, that was an interesting uh, way you phrased it because, number one, Kabbalah is Torah. Right. right. It's all interconnected. It's not like it's a completely separate it's, well it's obviously not a different you know religion it's it's all the deeper understanding of the same system it's just uh taking it it's beneath the surface but the fact that you didn't know that it was kabbalah i, I think is the greatest testament to the ramchal's mastery is that that's the point right he was able to take these incredibly obscure and esoteric ideas and present them in a way it doesn't even feel like it's esoteric anymore. It feels like, oh, this is just very logical. It's one step to the next. And that was, right. that was his mastery of his ability to do that in a way that it doesn't feel like Kabbalah. But it is. It certainly is. And that's all the sources that he's drawing on are Kabbalistic sources. And everything I've learned, too, is that over the years that the Torah is written in layers. You have the clothing, the body, and the soul of Torah. And the obligation of the Jew is to penetrate and learn all those levels. And it sounds like there was a period of time when that was taboo. And I understand the reason that you stated, because once you st- started getting more abstract philosophical ideas, it could open the mind to entertaining the allure of the abstract philosophical ideas that were emerging in the, the era of enlightenment. Well, but also without the, the foundation that you so aptly mentioned in the introduction, right? It had to be built on the, built on the foundation of first seeing that clothing and understanding that, if I'm not mistaken. It is true that he, every Jew is obligated to learn every element of it. The problem is that most of us won't get there. The vast majority of us won't get there. I mean, to the extent that maybe a few individuals will, maybe in every generation. But there we're talking about really, really deep things and a deep level of understanding. What the Ramchal is presenting and the way he starts the book is every single Jew must believe and know the following X, Y, Z. So this is stuff that although the sources from an intellectual perspective, an academic perspective are Kabbalistic, the concepts are essential for a Jew to understand. This isn't extraneous or really deep stuff that someone who's interested in deeper things would, you know, let's dabble in this kind of thing. These are the foundations of our life. These are the foundations of how we understand reality and why it's relevant to us and how we approach everything that we do. It sets the framework for everything. So, yeah, again, you know, this comes back full circle to that's why we're making this podcast to present this to the people, not as some uh, here's your intro to mysticism, but here's your intro to being a Jew, to being a human being. Because I found after I read this book and he gets into the mitzvot and why they're there. That's what propelled me. Now I understood it all. Why learn Parsha? Why learn the mitzvot? Why do the mitzvot? Now I was like empowered to go pursue this more practical or more real world learning that would cause me to live as a Jew, which is our purpose here. The purpose is not to sit and just learn deep concepts and then, you know, eat trafe and do whatever we want to do. In the end, it's all about changing who we are. But that's why I found this is that foundation that made me want to pursue those other things. And it's necessary for most people. I mean, without 
without that understanding, it's really hard to motivate yourself to change your, especially if you're changing your lifestyle, right? If you already live this way, it's one thing to, to understand why you're doing it and motivate yourself to do it on a deeper level. But if you're not coming from an observant background and you're curious about Judaism, you think, well, this is important to me and I, and I want to make sure that my children are Jewish and my grandchildren are Jewish. So to motivate yourself to make difficult lifestyle choices without the, the fundamental understanding of why you're doing it is, uh, I think, near impossible. I agree. Like, I just don't think our generation is just that you're going to watch Fiddler on the Roof and hear someone say, we just do things because of tradition, like it's a man-made tradition, and then go run out and start wearing seat seats or whatever else. Like, I think the the era we're in now, people need to learn some some deeper truths behind it. And we're seeing that. We, we see this yes. phenomenon today that other sects of Judaism, which don't focus on traditional ancient Torah study, are dying out. It was good for a few generations where people still held on to that, I'm a Jew, and that's never going to change, and I'm going to marry a Jew. And there was no questioning that. But how long does that last? It only goes two or three generations before you start to assimilate, and the kid says, what's the point? Well, that was kind of my experience, too. And the more secular side of Judaism was, I reached a point where I said, well, what is actually the difference between what we believe and something like secular humanism, where where they're just is no God involved at all? Uh, and, and I couldn't really answer that question, but I still, I couldn't just fully set aside my Judaism. I could not let it go. It was something that just, there, there's a real tether there that drew me back. That's unique also because I think a lot of people would be okay letting it go, and they are, and it's happening. You're unique, Joe. So talk a little, Joe, about the what the books meant to you as you've delved in now to... The first oh, wow. three chapters. Wow, yeah. So we've we've covered three chapters at this point, and we've also done a, a fourth episode that covers the questions that I've basically built up in the background throughout all this. But so the first chapter was really understanding what what little we can about God. What what is God? What do Jews believe about the existence of God and just the infinitude of his existence and the goodness therein. The second episode after that is, why is there creation? And I say want to. That's kind of an inherent thing. And we cover the concept that there's two ways to look at that. There's the, what did God want out of this? And that's unknowable for us, mere mortals. We just cannot comprehend what an absolutely perfect being such as Hashem would would want. We can't comprehend that. But the other side is, we can look at, what it's for. What does creation exist for? And this was the episode that really, really impacted me. And it's deep stuff. I mean, we went through it on the podcast, and then I went back and I actually listened to it twice after the rabbi had released it. And it was after that second listening where I just, I, I really felt like I, I, I would, I would not claim that I understand all of it, but really, uh, I've had some epiphanies about it that have just monumentally impacted me and the way that I feel just unbelievable gratitude for existing just for the fact that Hashem chose creation and chose to give us this extraordinary task of trying to cleave to him to to become masters of our own goodness thereby becoming almost godlike in, in the one way that we have control over which is our free will. We can choose to become closer to God 
or we can choose to be deficient in that regard. And becoming closer to God is obviously the harder path, but it's the more rewarding one as well. And I think we all know it internally. And then the third episode, so if, if the first episode was what is God and the second episode was what is creation for, then the third episode was what is man's place in that creation? And, and after all that, I had kind of some questions that didn't fit in perfectly with any of the lesson plans. And Rabbi Buzzko graciously entertained some of my questions in that regard. So how has this, you sort of mentioned this already to some degree, but how has this impacted your, your life? You go out in the work week and you have all these experiences. Are you finding those experiences to be different now with some of the the wisdom you've learned from this book? Yes. I'm more at peace with my surroundings. Uh, I recognize that it's it's all from God at this point, and I have an obligation to myself and the world around me, and that's to do my best with what I know, and I'm still learning. I'm I'm an absolute infant in this world. So as far as obeying the mitzvot, I am just beginning, but... I feel much less flappable. Everything that comes at me is just noise. I have, I have a job that's sometimes pretty hectic, but I feel I I can go there and I focus and my success comes from Hashem. So it's, it's just taken a huge load off of me. And simultaneously, I now have the weight of obligation. Now I know this and I, I have to do this. I had a, that, that experience, you know, before it was like the, the world before recognizing Torah and these concepts and there's a creator is very stressful. I mean, it, it naturally will turn you into a major control freak because I had a young infant little girl and I'm running the calculations, looking online at the potential predators. I have to protect her. There's harm in every, I'm calculating every financial situation one time my wife wanted me to go with her and Elsie to go to the, the park. And I said, I can't. I want to rerun my inflation calculations because I realized my modeling was wrong. I have responsibility to you guys to rerun these calculations. I can't go with you to the park on a Sunday. Right? It was like insanity because you're in control of all the variables. And they're all random. And there's multitude of different variables, right? You st- I started learning these concepts and realized that the yoke of the world can be thrown off. And you just take on the yoke of Torah. And there's a serenity because you don't control the outcome, but you know that someone that cares about you and loves you with infinite power is controlling the outcome. And your job is just to please him by fulfilling his will. That's a really good way to put it. That's, that's exactly what it feels like is just taking this one off that it, and, and putting on one that I would so much rather have that this, this yoke that you, that you say, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a burden where the other one was. This is something I'm, I'm like proud to hold. I'm honored. I'm unbelievably humbled by this process too, because I've recognized there's just so much that I don't know where a year ago, uh, I was, I was a pretty arrogant young man. Uh, you know, I had all, all the education and everything. And I thought that meant that I really knew what I was doing and. It's not the case at all. I think arrogant young men is redundant. (laughs) (laughs) True. True. Yes. Well, I've been at this 12 years now, 
I still feel like an absolute ignoramus wherever I go. But hey, me too. So we're in the <laughs> so same boat. It's, it's just the nature of learning Torah. Uh, that's it. I'm glad you asked this question, though, about you know how, how does this translate into your life? Because that, that's a question that we all need to ask ourselves whenever we learn anything. And you brought up the Baal Shem Tov. This is one of his axioms that he presented, is that whatever Torah learning that you're going through, whatever you're, you're studying at the moment, God will be sending messages through you in life that will bring that out. I had this example just this last weekend that uh, the, the mega millions got up to, was it 1.2 something billion? So you didn't even notice, great. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, why not? I went out and bought a ticket and the drawing is on Friday night. So it's Shabbos, I can't check it. So the whole Shabbos, you know, I, I wasn't distracted by it too much, but like there's this ridiculous thing. Like if you buy a ticket, obviously you're going to win, right? So you start thinking about it. But then throughout throughout Shabbos, there were several things. The week before, I had taught my children who is considered wealthy. It's a Mishnah in Pirkei Elvis. It's one of our, our classic Jewish teachings. Who's considered wealthy? Someone who's happy with what he has. And several times over the course of Shabbos, my, my kids were saying, Tati, I'm so rich. I'm so wealthy because I have everything I need. I'm like, oh, okay. Right at the end, right at the end of Shabbos, before we made Havdalah, before we went into Saturday night and I was able to check anything, my daughter was reading a story to my son. And the story was as follows, the story from the Talmud that she has in, in a little picture book that they had, the, the rabbis of the time in Israel were greeting their colleague, Azaria, who had just returned from overseas. And he came back with a fortune. And they said, wow, it must be must be really easy to get rich outside the land of Israel. Maybe we should all, you know, take a hiatus from our learning. It'll be worth it because then we'll go overseas. We'll get really rich. We'll come back. We'll have everything we need. And then we'll end up saving so much time because all our needs will be taken care of. We can just study Torah all the time and not have to worry about anything. It's like, oh, great idea. Their master overheard all of this. He said, okay, here's an opportunity to teach them a lesson. He came up to them. I believe it was Rav Yochai. And he said to them, uh, my student, come Come, students, let's go on a, come with a walk. Come on a walk with me. And so what about our study? He says, don't worry, you're, you're going to learn something valuable. They followed him out into the middle of nowhere. And eventually they got to a deep pit in the ground, empty hole. He prayed, master prayed, and he said, God, please make a miracle for me because I need to teach my students this valuable lesson. And he announced, great pit in the ground, fill up with gold coins. And immediately, the entire pit just filled to the brim with gleaming, shiny gold coins. And all of his students were amazed. Wow, amazing. This is incredible. We thought we were going to have to go all the way to you know, travel overseas and make a lot of it. It's right here. This is the best. Now we have all the money that we need. And we can continue studying with no problem. And he said, yes, take as much as you want. But I want to first warn you, anyone who takes a single coin, you should know that whatever you take is taking out of your portion in the world to come. And they all stopped and looked at each other. They said, it's not worth it. Let's go home. And he taught them this lesson that, you know, we, we, it's very easy to get distracted. You think, well, if I have all this money, because I, I was making these calculations myself, and it's, it, I'm sure it was not a coincidence that my daughter taught me this lesson. I was thinking, well, if I had, you know, I'd take the cash option of $747 million, and, and then I, I can set up this institution, I can give this money to that people. You know what? 
it's better. I have everything I need. I have a, a life where I can study Torah and teach Torah. I have the most amazing life. And I felt stupid for buying a ticket. But, uh, but if you just open your eyes, God is teaching you at every moment the, the Torah lessons that you've learned. We, the, the opportunities are there. So it's, it's a great question that you asked. How does this translate into your life? We, we open our eyes. We can see it. Right. Well, that's, you know, Torah is not meant to be academic. We are supposed to learn how to apply it. I do find as well, I bought a lottery ticket every now and then I get frustrated at work and I feel stupid as well because I realize that the pursuing a livelihood as just one example, those interactions are a way for us to apply what we learn, build our mido, be put in those situations that, that strengthen our amuna. They're there to forge us into who Hashem wants us to be. There's another story. I don't know who this was. It's anonymous that there was a, there was a man who was studying full-time in Kolal. So he was a married man who was studying under a stipend. They're pretty poor in general. They got to a Torah portion that week where there's all the curses to the Jewish people. The custom is not to give that aliyah, that being called up to the Torah, for that specific portion. The custom is to let the person who's reading the Torah anyway to just continue and take it for himself, but you don't give it to someone else because that's all the curses. This person, pretty brazen, he said, you know what, just give it to me, I'll take it. And they all, are you sure? He said, yeah, give it to me. Fine. So they gave it to him. He took the, he took the, he says, well, yeah, watch what happens. Something's going to happen. That week, that following week, he won the lottery and became immensely wealthy. And so everyone else in Kola is like, they're scratching that up. What is going on? They went to the rabbi. How does this add up? This chutzpah that he had to take this aliyah with all these curses, and then he wins the lottery. And the rabbi told him, that's right. You watch what happens to him. He won the lottery. Now he's busy with his money. Watch how much Torah he's going to learn now. Watch how many mitzvahs he does. It's so the real curse. More of a blessing than we think to not win the lottery. Right, exactly. Gentlemen, that was so much fun. I enjoyed having you guys on the show to talk with us and I encourage the listeners please you definitely have to go check out this podcast if you've studied the book The Way of God before like myself you're going to learn it at a much deeper level so go back and listen subscribe if you've never studied this book my friends I, I implore you to go out and definitely listen to this podcast as we've sort of been stating the the fundamentals of Jewish knowledge the foundation it's it's necessary it's something that I believe you will have the same, it'll have the same impact on you that did me, Joe, Rabbi Busco, in strengthening your connection to the Almighty and His Torah. Gentlemen, thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much, Dan. It's, uh, it's, it's an honor. The podcast name is What is Judaism? It's available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Check it out. We'd love to have you. And please, if anyone has any questions, send an email to me. The average rabbi at torchweb.org. I have a feeling, I really do suspect that we'll continue to le learn from you, Joe, well after the podcast. I sure hope that I have advanced enough that I can continue to be uh, of help to other people. You're, you're on the trajectory. Uh, you got the best rabbi. I suspect that one day I'll be calling you rabbi as well. You already are my rabbi because I'm already learning from you. So thanks again, gentlemen, for coming on. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. 
And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.